worship today, and I, I told the first service that uh, I've got a, a little bit of an apology to make because I made some bold statements in the past couple of weeks. I'm not going to be able to back them up. And here they were. I told you we were going to start really moving through the book of Philippians and get done quicker. We are going to hit the brakes today. It is going to be slow because here's the thing is that we're into week 11 and what we're discovering or what I'm discovering as we're teaching through this is that there we have to pay attention to some of these things. We can't just kind of lip service and, and gloss over eight, nine, ten verses at a time because the richness and the depth of what is buried in this book is unbelievable. And so while my intention was to get through about five verses today, we're going to get through one or two. And it's going to be great because it's powerful. And, and Paul's doing something very specific. And so we're not stopping. We're just kind of hitting the brakes for a little bit. And we're going to spend a couple of weeks focused on, on a couple of things today. So apologies that we're not going to motor through. But I've loved it. And I told you last week, I don't know if you've loved it, but I've loved it. The past 11 weeks have been great because there's something about going through scripture, piece by piece, every word that forces us to deal with the things that we don't want to deal with. It forces us to uncover the sort of depths of theological power, the depths of scripture, and really be able to say, God, I don't know what that means. So rather than just skipping over it, I want to say, I want to understand what you have to say to me. And sometimes we gloss over difficult places in scripture because we don't know what to do with them. The reality is that every piece of scripture is God's word spoken to us, and God wants to teach us very powerfully through that truth. So I've loved the experience. We're going to kind of continue to hammer our way through it as we begin week 11 in the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 3. Now, you've got to understand a few things about last week in order to really understand where we're going this week. So I'm going to give you a, like a 10-second recap, uh, just so those of you that weren't here will know kind of where we're moving on from. Because the verses we looked at last week are actually connected to, it's the finishing of a sentence and a train of thought um, from what we're doing this week. So they're, they're really connected. And, and Paul spent the first kind of two chapters of the book of Philippians really talking about the church's call to live in unity and humility together. That if we live that way, if we live as one with one heartbeat, one mission, we can be effective in sharing the gospel with the world. So he was challenging this church, this small group of ragtag believers, Greek believers gathered in Philippi that, that were impoverished and persecuted and struggling. He had been calling them to live in unity together, to say, listen, as a church, you're called to live in community, and when you live with one mission, one like-minded heart, you become an effective tool uh, for the gospel. And so he was given all this kind of unity. Well, he's going to shift gears, and he's going to begin to close his letter. In fact, la last week we learned in chapter 3 that Paul uses the word finally, or basically in conclusion. And it's going to take him two chapters to wrap up his thoughts. But he's kind of wrapping up his thoughts and closing out this letter, and leaving them with sort of this last kind of movement, and it's a shift from this humility and unity teaching to really a, a foundational, doctrinal kind of uh, bedrock layer that he's laying for them. I mean, he lays this foundation of theological truth, basically in which they can measure all of the truth up against, because there's a couple important things you have to remember, and I said this last week, and that is there's two things. One, good teaching was really hard to find in those days, and I don't use the word good like entertaining. When we say good teaching nowadays, we're talking about entertaining. When you look at it and you say, oh man, you know, he or she, they're, they're a great or they're a really good teacher. What you're saying is that they don't put me to sleep. They tell really funny stories or they're engaging or whatever. This guy's a good, good teacher. When I use the word good, I'm talking about theologically sound. I'm talking about accurate and powerful. I'm talking about good teaching that tells great theology so that we can use it as a baseline for our lives. And in those days, 2,000 years ago, good teaching was nearly impossible to find. Because the apostles were the teachers, and churches were being planted all over the country 
all of the countryside there outside of, of Judea moving up into the Gentile areas, all the way up to Rome. And the apostles would teach and they would put people in charge, but there was no Bible to turn to. It wasn't like, hey, that guy came in, he said something that sounded a little crazy. I want to look at it and see if I can find it in Scripture. This didn't exist. What existed were letters that the apostles had written to these churches, and they treated them like gold. So Paul would write a letter to the Galatians or the Corinthians, and they would circulate that letter, and they would hang on to it, and they would read it and read it and read it, and it became the baseline for truth, for theological truth, the apostles' teaching. So you couldn't on every corner just get a podcast or listen to this person or find really great teaching or go to Mardell's and get a book and read it. I mean, it was hard to find. Um, And so we take that for granted all the time. And the other thing that was kind of running rampant was that bad teaching or false teaching or corrupt teaching was very prevalent. And the reason for that was because people were combining and mixing a lot of things together back in those days. So if you lived in Corinth, maybe you heard about Jesus and you were like, yeah, that Jesus, that sounds like something I want to believe in. God is, that's really cool. But I also know that, that these guys came in from a kind of far Asia and they came in with this idea. And so I, I kind of learned that you should marry those two things together. And so now I can believe in this and this and this. And then they'd go traveling around, they'd walk in, they'd find the church in Philippi that was gathering together, and they'd go, oh, you believe in Jesus too? That's great, that's really cool, so do we. But you know what real Christians believe? They also believe this, that if you do these things and that, then. So there was all this sort of constantly bad teaching. And that's what Paul's warning the Philippians about in the beginning of chapter 3. He's saying, listen, there are some people out there that are trying to corrupt your minds. And he was talking about a specific group of people called the Judaizers. And what they taught was that you needed to believe in Jesus Christ and your Lord and Savior, but you also had to completely hold to all the ritual practices of the Mosaic law, which means you had to be circumcised as a man. You had to follow all the food laws and the dress laws and all the ceremonial requirements of the law, that you had to believe in Jesus and do these things or you wouldn't be saved. And Paul says, basically calls them evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. And he, calls, he says, listen, the only thing that we do is put our hope and our confidence in Jesus alone. It is by Christ alone, not by anything you do. No amount of super religious teaching is ever going to get you there. And in chapter 3, kind of remembering what we learned last week, this is what Paul said. If anybody could do that, it was me. Right? I lived the right life. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I kept the law. I was faultless. I was a Pharisee. I was passionate. I persecuted Christians. If doing religious deeds got you to eternal life, got you to an abundant life in Christ, then that was me. But what we're going to pick up now this week is where Paul kind of continues that train of thought and says, however, I've learned something much bigger than that. So Paul is kind of continuing this train of thought, challenging the Philippians to begin to think about a solid baseline of theological truth, which is why we're going to slow down and talk about it. He's going to do it in three sections. He's basically going to say this kind of baseline of truth is about knowing Jesus, about being found in Jesus, and about sharing in Jesus, right? Not sharing Jesus, but sharing in Jesus. And we're going to talk about knowing Christ today, and then we're going to work on the other two over the next week or so. So if you've got your Bible, Philippians chapter 3, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to look at the kind of the first part we looked at last week, and then kind of move through that a little bit. So if you've got it, if you don't, there's one next to you, it may be around you, or by, you know, in that little area, just pick it up, chapter 3. The reason we want you to use your Bible is because uh, I want you to see this stuff in there. I don't care if you remember one single thing that ever comes out of my mouth. I want you to have this encounter with God's Word and then go home and say, God, how do I, how do I wrestle with this? So find that Bible, open it up, and uh, we're going to be in the book of Philippians chapter 3. So if you've got your Bible, let's do that. Let's pray, and then uh, we'll just sort of see what happens. God, we thank you for truth. Truth is not always easy to hear. Sometimes it's uncomfortable, but it is nonetheless truth. God, we pray that what you do this morning is teach our hearts. 
Maybe a revelation about who you are, your character, your way. Just move in us. God, we know that only you can reveal truth, so we don't expect to open your word and learn something. God, we know that your spirit will reveal something to us. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to show you something about who he is today. God, show me something about who you are. And take a moment and pray for someone beside you. Maybe you came with them, maybe you didn't. Um, Maybe you don't even know their name. Maybe you've never seen them before. Just pray for them. Just as I say every week, be in the habit of praying for other people. God, we pray that you would teach us through your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to back up to chapter 3, verse 4. So we're going to be in 7 and 8-ish today, but I'm going to read down through 11. But I'm going to back up because it's a continuation of a thought that Paul had last week that we're picking up on. So you need to read them in context together. So this is what Paul's saying. He's talking about if anybody had the ability to put confidence in their own ability to do things or had the ability to kind of say, I can do this. I can work my way into God's favor. Paul's saying it's me. And this is what he says. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. There's a lot of things in there. In fact, if you really, outside of the book of Romans, there's probably no more compact, succinct picture of good theology anywhere in the New Testament that Paul writes. And he's really writing this to kind of say, look, church, followers of Christ, I need you to understand this baseline of truth because everything hinges on these things. And he's going to talk about knowing Christ and being found in Christ and sharing in Christ. And this week we're going to look at that sort of knowing Christ piece. Because here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying if the Christian life was built on what we could do, on our own ability to chase things down, if God's favor was something that we could earn, right? Then my life would be the marker for that. I was born in the right family, in the right tribe. I know my history. I was passionate. I was so passionate for God that I was persecuting the church, right? He goes, I was faultless when it came to keeping the law. We got to remember that Paul's not some kind of bank robber that did a bunch of things wrong. He was a passionate religious leader who loved the Lord Yahweh. And he felt like that on his own ability, he could go out and accomplish things for God. God, this is what I have to offer you, all right? But Paul says, when I began to realize, right, when God revealed to me that what I had to offer was meaningless, he goes, something powerful happened. And he said, I realized this, that whatever whatever was to my profit, whatever the world would say, man, Paul, you've got it together. You're talented. You're skilled. You're educated. You can do this. Paul says, I considered a loss for the sake of Christ, What is more, I consider everything in the world, in my life, everything, everything, everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. 
So if we're looking at this idea of knowing Christ, there's a couple of things that we have to understand. The first thing is this. Knowing Christ really means understanding this idea, that loss is actually gain. Okay, so in the, in the understanding of the Christian life, loss is actually gain. When we lose ourselves, when we surrender ourselves in our own ability, in our own way of living, in our own thinking, we are actually gaining something magnificent, which is what Paul says. Everything that was to my profit, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. He goes on to say, everything, actually, I consider rubbish. Now, that word rubbish is really, really an interesting word, and I'm going to tell you what it means, whether you kind of like it or not. The word rubbish in the Greek is the word skubalon. And the word skubalon doesn't really mean rubbish as you and I may understand it. The word skubalon actually means uh, waste, human waste, excrement, or the word that you and I are both thinking that I'm not going to say, right? That's what it means. It's only used once in the New Testament. That's the reason it's only used once in the New Testament is because it is a nasty, ugly word for human excrement. This is what Paul says. Paul says that everything that I have to offer, right, all of my own abilities, everything that I have is absolutely, compared to knowing Jesus, human waste. It's excrement. It's that worthless. Now, this is really, really powerful stuff because here's kind of what Paul's saying in a nutshell. He's saying the God of the universe, who is so deeply in love with you, so deeply in love with the creation that he breathed life into, that God, the God that loved the world enough, the very world that would betray him and spit on him and crucify his perfect son, that very world, he says, I love you so much that I want you to know me, that I will send my son Jesus to die on a Roman cross, to be raised from the dead so that you might have unity with me. That's the gift I'm giving you. You can't earn it. You can't come to it on your own, and I know that. And so I send my son to do what you can't do for yourself. I love you that deeply that he was killed and crucified and raised from the dead. This is the perfect gift of God. And then all you have to do is believe in faith, reach out in faith, receive eternal life. It's a gift that God says. Paul says what we do, right, when we rely on our own ability and our own way of doing things and our own power and our own control is we walk outside to the outhouse, to the septic tank, and we scoop up with our own hands this dirty, filthy mess. We walk into God's temple and we say, God, thank you for what you did for me, but I actually have something better that I want to offer you. And I want to offer you this. Because actually, God, I don't need you. I'm doing pretty well on my own. I'm living pretty well. I mean, look, look at how I can control and live my life, the ability that I have to, to earn your favor. Now, everybody around you knows what you're holding, and they know it stinks, and they know it's nasty, but we're so stubborn that we don't even see what's in our own hands, and we say, God, I can do this for you. And so I want you to receive my gift to you. Now, we don't like to think about our gifts that way. We like to think we're pretty good. Like, I got it together, right? I mean, I'm not a terrible person. I mean, I work hard to do these things. But, Paul, but Paul's basically saying, compared to just knowing Jesus, everything you have to offer is waste. It's human waste. That's how kind of this massive dividing line, right, between the goodness of God's gift and what we offer is. And Paul's saying this. He says, that day when, when I was walking on the road to Damascus and I was passionate about persecuting these Christians and I was going to capture them and arrest them and have them killed. That day when God knocked me to my knees, blinded me, and led me down to the city and then spoke to me. Because I began to realize that everything I had to offer the Lord was getting me nowhere. And so I basically said, God, I want your free gift that I couldn't earn. Now we like to think that this is not what we do, but the truth is we do. When we say, God, 
I'm going to earn your favor by doing more, by serving more, by praying more, by reading more, because by, by doing that, somehow I can move my way closer to you. Paul says it's an impossibility. And this is what he was talking about with these guys that were coming in and saying, Jesus plus following the law. If it's not Jesus alone, right, it's waste. Now, we live in a life where we want to do Jesus plus. Yes, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I'm going to work my tail off to make sure I feel good about my situation or so that God will forgive me for this or do that, or I need to pick myself up by my bootstraps. I need to to gather myself, and I need to move on. Paul says, no, the Christian life is about loss, and it equals gain. And when you lose everything, when you surrender yourself, what you gain is Jesus, knowing him and being found in him, which we're going to talk about next week. Think about that sentence for a moment, that everything in my life is a loss, is waste, is trash, compared to just knowing Jesus. The second thing we've got to understand is that there's a huge difference between knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus, right? A relationship with Christ is intimate and personal. And there there probably is no other more intimate statement in all of Scripture than what Paul is kind of pinning here when he says, Whatever was to my loss, I compare, I can, or whatever to my profit, I consider a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's no more intimate statement when he says, everything that this world says I have, all the stuff, all the strongholds, all the savings, all the stuff, everything is a waste compared to knowing my Lord Jesus. Knowing Jesus is intimate and personal. We were created to have this intimate, personal relationship with the Lord, and it's possible through Christ alone. Now, I had a seminary professor way back in the day when I was in seminary who, you know, my seminary experience was interesting. I went to a seminary that, um, just to kind of say the least, I was a little bit different than most. It was a little bit more liberal in some of its slantings in some ways, in some ways in others. And, and, and my experience with school was really that I felt like no one was really interested in, in studying the things that were interesting. Everybody wanted to study the things that we don't really need to study. And so I always kind of wrestled with these things in class. And one of the, the things that I had in this, one of my classes, one of the professors said, in a sort of most pious kind of religious voice, he said, students, right, his little tweed jacket with his elbow pads. I swear, this is, I mean, just what you're thinking in your mind is exactly what is it. <laughs> students. What would one say, right, one, what would one say is the single greatest treasure in all of the Christian life? Now, I had yet to learn just to keep my mouth closed because these are all loaded questions. They are there to make you look like a fool, right? And, but this is early on in my experience, and so I, of course, knew the answer, or at least I thought I did. And so I was like, ah. And, he, and of course, he's like, Mr. Prater, right, because it's small classes. And I said, well... I think, I'm pretty sure that the single greatest treasure in all the Christian life is a personal relationship with Jesus. Right? Pretty profound. I'm pretty proud of myself. He says, he kind of gets a little class of silent because they knew. I mean, no one raises your hand. Quit talking. And, uh, and he gets there real quiet and he kind of gets a smirk on his face. And he says, every time I ask that question, someone says that kind of answer. And I get to remind them that nowhere in Scripture can you find such a phrase that refers to a personal relationship with a risen Messiah. Thank you, Mr. Prater, for the try. (laughs) So I sat there feeling like a complete 
cool, right? <laughs> kind of going, awesome. And I was angry because I knew that what I said, there was truth in that. But in my little limited ability to articulate it, I wasn't going to be able to argue with this sort of double PhD guy and something that doesn't matter, another thing that doesn't matter, and he's smarter than I am by a thousand times over. And I knew my little simple answer, I knew there was truth dripping in it somehow, right? So I sat there frustrated and mad, and everyone's kind of giggling at what a ridiculous answer it was. Didn't have enough big words in it or whatever, and so I just was mad. I left, and... You know, a couple of weeks went by, and I was spending time just in the, in the Word, and I was spending time, with, and I was just in Philippians, and I came across this verse, and I thought, you know, maybe there's not a phrase that says personal relationship with Jesus in four words, but this is certainly what Paul's talking about, because he says this, right? Paul says, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing, knowing, not knowing about Christ Jesus, my Lord. You want to know the single most frightening uh, kind of passage in all of Scripture? Well, you probably don't, but I'm going to tell you anyway. You want to know the single most frightening passage in all of Scripture comes on the end of the, end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching this crowd of people, which started off as a group of 12. 12 guys sitting around, Jesus teaching the disciples, and then the crowd kind of grows and grows and grows into a group of about 100, 200, 300, 400,000, just a ton of people on the side of this mountain. He gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's got religious leaders and Pharisees and disciples and just people from the countryside. They're all just kind of gathered around. And this is what Jesus says to him at the very end, right? He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do we not drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You want to know why that's petrifying? Because there's a difference in knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. And he's saying, many of you will stand in the last day and you will say, Lord, Lord. You will say all the right words. You will call me by those names. You will say, Lord, Lord, do we not, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons? Do we not do miracles? Do we not do all this stuff for you? And that, Jesus said, I'll look at them plainly and I'll say, I never knew you. Which means that our churches can be filled with people that are doing things for God. You can show up here and serve every single day and you can mow our grass and make our coffee and make sure the elevator works and scrub the floors and plunge the toilets. And you can do things greater than that. You can do all kinds of things. And you can say, you can walk out and you can preach in the name of Jesus and you can can do all these things and never know Jesus. And Jesus says, on the day I will look at you, I said, never knew you. And it's petrifying to me because we fill our lives with things that we can do for God and we hope that we can earn his favor because we feel so crummy about the existence that we are that we just say, if I could do this, then I'll feel better. So I get a new Devo and I make some new prayers and I do these things and I make sure I don't miss church because I feel bad. But truly knowing Christ is about a relationship, a personal relationship. Where does that leave you? Do you have an intimate relationship where you, where you weep and you wail and you laugh and you cry and you triumph with God that has given you life? Where you bear your heart and your soul, good and bad, and you say, Jesus, you have rescued me and I have the ability to do nothing. Maybe that's something that you used to have and no longer have, but long for. Knowing Christ is intimate and it's personal. It is not a habitual ritual that we do in the church. where We come in and we open and we listen and we leave. Filling your life with godly or Christian or religious activities will get you nowhere. 
Now, I'm not saying those things are wrong. I need people to make coffee, right? But it's a response, always a response to the knowing Jesus. God, because I know you and love you, I want to do everything I can to help people know that too. And if that means I can move here and make coffee so that everybody else has the opportunity to meet you, Jesus, I want to be about that because my relationship with you is what drives me. And Paul says this. He says, that's the greatness of knowing Jesus, that everything else is it's waste. And finally, finally, Paul says this, or that we've got to deal with this. So we've got to deal with understanding loss is gain, this sort of intimate personal relationship with Christ. And finally, we've got to deal with this, this idea of, of we've got to understand the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, I actually could probably spend about eight weeks talking about the doctrine of the lordship of Christ. But I'm going to do it quickly, and we're going to do some stuff later on this year with some of our theology and teach on Wednesday nights, and we'll have opportunities to do that. But I want you to hear this, because this is something that we have to understand, that we can't know Jesus without understanding this idea of the lordship of Christ. We all want to acknowledge, and I say we all, let's assume we all want to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Lord of creation, Lord overall, God made everything, he is Lord. Jesus is Lord. But what we don't want to acknowledge is that Jesus is the Lord of my life. So we want to live with the idea that Jesus is big and that he's Lord and that everything kind of revolves around him. But when it comes to our own lives, we don't want to live in that truth. But Jesus is Lord is both a truth and a proclamation, and it means something very significant. Because the lordship of Christ is the understanding that God, through Jesus Christ, is in total and absolute control of everything. We flip back just a few verses, right? Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And I'm just going to read the middle of it. This is, what, this is what we are learning about Jesus. Therefore God exalted Jesus, him, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That every tongue confess, every knee will bow. Every name, bigger than any other name, is the name of Jesus. Jesus is Lord means that Jesus is all. Now, here's the thing. Whether you want to admit it or not, whether you want to proclaim it or not, Jesus is Lord of your life. And it means that when I say Jesus is Lord, I'm saying, Jesus, you are Lord of me. You have the right to govern my life, my decisions. You are Lord of my marriage. You are Lord of my finances. You are Lord of my job. You are Lord of me. That I bow to your will as opposed to my own. The single greatest battle you will have in your Christian life is your battle for control, right? Control over your life versus God's will, always. It's a losing battle. Control is an illusion, just a joke. But it's a losing battle, but we do it anyway. Why? Because we want to put confidence in me. Because the world has told us all of our lives that if we just pull ourselves up, if we just get after it, if we just get a job, we just do this, we can fix it. I mean, I was raised that way, weren't you? You know, in your own life, when it comes to those things, just you can do it. You just get after it. You just work harder. We transfer that to our spiritual lives all the time. That If I just work harder, I'll get myself out of this empty mess. It's a lie. The Lordship of Jesus Christ says, God, it is you. You are bigger than all that I know, and you have the right to govern my life because you are my Lord. Now, I'll tell you where I want to be. I'm going to wrap all this up right here. I'll tell you where I want to be. I'm not there, but I want to be there. I want to be there with with every part of my heartbeat. I would say this phrase, that whatever was to my profit, whatever I consider to gain, whatever this world has 
for me, whatever I have in myself, I would consider everything a loss compared to knowing Jesus. I would love to be able to look at my life and say, God, I would give everything away to know you more. That's what Paul's saying, that we might be in a place where we can say, God, every gift, every savings, every stronghold, every power, everything that I do, all my battles for control, all my desires, all my dreams, everything, I would wash it all away to know you because I know what it is. It's trash compared to you, compared to you. Now, it's not that all those things are always wrong, but compared to knowing Jesus, they have their place. I want to be at a place in my life where I say, Jesus, you get everything, everything. I won't hold on to it any longer. I'm not going to fight you for it. I'm not going to grip it as hard as I can. Whether it's material things or just things in the deepest, darkest recesses of my heart, I'm not going to hold on to them anymore because there's a greatness that comes, greatness that comes from just knowing this is the baseline that Paul begins to set a theological framework to say all their teaching gets measured up against this, <clears throat> knowing Jesus. So today, the question as we walk out these doors are, are you at a place where you can say, Jesus, everything is a loss compared to just knowing you? Maybe you're battling control right now with the Lord for something. Maybe you've lost intimacy in your relationship with him, or maybe, just maybe, you're trying to do this all on your own. God says you will always, always wind up empty because it's Jesus alone and we were created to know him, realizing that letting go and surrendering our lives, we actually gain knowing him and being found in him, a personal relationship with Christ when we surrender everything to his lordship. Surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. My, my, my Lord. Let's pray.